Welcome back to Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast. I'm really excited. Today I have such an interesting conversation for you with Amanda Saderholm. Amanda is a child therapist and an author, and she gives us a really great overview of what it's like to work with kids, what the goals are. For any of you who have been wondering whether or not your children would benefit from therapy, what play therapy actually is, why we do it. This is a great primer into that work. For the rest of us, this is also just a really interesting conversation about how what we do and what we need as children can follow us through time, contribute to how we process grief and loss, and maybe even how we can heal. I'm really grateful that Amanda was willing to come on my podcast and enjoy the conversation. Hi, everybody. This is Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast with your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis. I'm here with Amanda Saderhelm, and I have been on her podcast, and she graciously agreed to come over and be on my podcast. Amanda, thank you so much for being here with us today. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. And I'd love for you to just tell folks about who you are and what you do and why you're in this workspace of grief and loss. So go ahead and take it away. Hi, Megan. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here and uh, talk to you about this amazing work that that we're both involved with. So I'm a play therapist and I specialize in grief and loss. And I, I teach and I train and I talk about helping parents and professionals really cope with grief and loss and come to sort of an understanding of of what it means for them and what I've learned is it means something different to everybody it's not the same for everyone and that's really what's so fascinating about it partly for me is that everyone's got their own grief story and my real job is to facilitate the telling of that story Mm. I work with young children between the ages of for right up to sort of teenage with the whole family as well and with young children sometimes talking about their grief is quite challenging so telling a story through play through storytelling is how they access their their grief language with adults as you know it's it's easier we we've we've got words we've got language to talk about how we feel talk about our feelings and to describe those feelings but with young children, it's more difficult because they don't at that early age have the cognitive functioning and development to be able to do that. So play therapy is a very useful medium for helping them to explain in language that's natural for them how they feel. That's amazing. What it's making me think about, and you may know this, so so my first master's degree was in child development, which is to me, almost like a prerequisite to any sort of psychology degree, because all of the things that happen early for children are the sort of building blocks of how we come to understand how adults process information later. But one of the primary tenets of actually several different theories about how we move through grief has to do with creating a manageable narrative for some people that might mean that it has that the that the loss has some bigger greater meaning that it's connected to something spiritual but finding a narrative so that you're not tossed around in the throes of the story every time you find yourself feeling an emotion about it but sort of this is what happened this is what it means this is how i move forward in my life and that's really difficult for adults as well so it's interesting to hear that part of what you're facilitating more through play is the exact same thing that we're facilitating, particularly early with adults, which is, you know, moving through the feelings so that they don't toss you around. And I think you and I have talked a little bit about this before in the writer's workshop that I run on my website is that's definitely the intent. Find your words, get them out, 
organize them. You know, very few people that I'm working with are then going to take their content and turn it into something that other people read. It's really just creating the narrative for themselves. What are some of the techniques that you use to help children do that? Yeah, so the narrative aspect of my work is, as you say, with adults, it's it's language-based. Exactly. With children, it's, it's story-based. So what happens with childhood uh, bereavement and grief is that there's a very big loss around attachment. So whenever the child experiences a loss, they're also experiencing that loss of that feeling of security and the attachment that they may have to whoever has died or whatever the loss may be about. So in play therapy, I would say there are three things in the room. There's the child, me, the therapist, and there's the object. The object can be any kind of play intervention, whether it's uh, working in sand, whether it's um, painting or drawing, whatever the medium is, that's the way the child is going to build and create their narrative for their story. So they will naturally choose whichever medium they feel most comfortable with. I don't have to direct them. That's the amazing thing about play therapy. Mm. The minute the child comes into the room, they are intuitively selecting and drawn to whichever medium they know is going to enable them to tell their story. So I've had children come in and spend several sessions telling that story in the sand and they'll choose little objects and they'll place them in the sand and they'll tell me that story. I had one little boy who was fostered and then adopted. He'd had three different homes. So there was a lot of loss, a lot Mm -hmm. of trauma, a lot of grief. And each week his story in the sand showed me the house that he'd lived in for a short period of time. And this story built and built up. And eventually, towards the end of his therapy, there were three little houses in the sand. Oh. And there was, a, there was a padlock next to this house. I asked him about the padlock and he said, well, you know, that's, that's my real home. That's the one I can't get into. And his parents had really struggled to get him to talk about his feelings, which of course he was acting out at school and he was very angry and they couldn't understand it. Nobody could understand why he was so angry, but the story in the sand explained why he felt locked out and shut out. So, you know, other mediums I use a lot, therapeutic storytelling is another tool that I Mm -hmm. use for helping slightly older children between six to 10. I use a framework called the hero's journey which you know you I'm sure you're familiar with yes, where the child comes in and we start with you know whatever the crisis is and I help them work through that crisis right through to the point where they have understood what inner resources they need to fill up with in order to overcome whatever challenge they're facing and you know that can take anywhere between six to 12 sessions but sometimes it can happen very quickly and a child can just get it straight away. This is, this is where I am. This is where I want to be. This is how I'm going to get there. So it's a very childlike way of explaining something that as adults, we know to be, you know, how to solve a problem. We've got a problem. How are we going to solve it? What do we need? We do that quite easily, but children need that sort of partner, that witness which is really why I do that. One of the reasons why I do the work is because it's such a powerful thing to witness a child finding their voice. It's fascinating to me. I mean, I'm in the middle of writing a memoir and my editor is having me use the hero's journey as the template. Mm. So the parallels here, I'm just really totally fascinated. And part of what, part of what you said in the beginning, you know, I'm imagining a child coming into your office and, and having, in front of them, all different modalities to choose from, which they haven't been, I don't have better language, but sort of shamed or culturated out of. And in my work with adults, it's like the opposite, which is, I mean, one exercise I do regularly with traumatized patients, it, it, not, it isn't necessarily a primary grief story, but as you know, with trauma, there's always loss. And often a sense of loss of safety, but an exercise that I do with people who have early childhood trauma often is that I get them to identify a friend 
in their life, some, maybe not even a friend, but someone in their life that feels childlike to them and take them to, for us, it's target the children's aisle at target and spend uh, at least a hundred dollars on toys. And many adults, I've had more than one adult be like, I do not want to do this exercise. I will not be good at this exercise. And what I try to explain is that's because you were not able to access or feel safe making these choices as a child. But for kids who had a more buoyant, resilient childhood, they could tell you, I played a lot of jacks. I jumped rope. I loved battleship. So we're trying to go back for that. And we go back for it so that we can do some of this inner child early work that you're describing doing in the moment. And so I'm just thinking about how lucky, whether they know it or not, these kids are, because when we talk about trauma and getting enough support, this is what we're talking about, which is not an adult coming in and explaining to you what happened, but you being able to take your energy, you know, as a child and move it through so that it feels fine for you, maybe not resolved, not perfect, but, but less crunchy and edgy and difficult to hold. Yeah. And that, that process begins at the door yeah. when the child enters the room. So I can tell from a way a child enters my room where they are, how comfortable they are, how safe they might feel. And the process of that relationship, because that's what really the work's about. It's about building a relationship with their unspoken parts and with their spoken parts as well. So the way a child comes into the room tells me a great deal about where they're going to step to next. And sometimes it can take a while before they can select a toy for the very reason you say, they may be very uncomfortable with that whole scenario. They may have only had um, one or two toys at home, depending on their level of deprivation, really. And so the the more they start to experiment and play, the more they begin to realise that those toys are symbols, actually, as well. They're functioning as symbols for their emotional need and that it's an extraordinary thing to witness. And I think, you know, when I talk to parents about it, they say, well, what do you actually do? What, yeah. How does it actually work? And I say, well, it's really difficult to understand and to explain, but it's a kind of magic. There is a certain special energy that goes on in the room that happens between, between us. And, you know, when it, when it works, it's really incredible. I think that's probably true of the therapeutic process in general. I joke with my Mm. clients sometimes saying things like, look, nobody would ever come back if I told them what they were going to do in here, you know, (laughs) and how long it was going to take. Most of the work that I do is the bottom up, less sort of talk therapy, but more in trauma anyway, more bottom up body centered. A lot of it is not intellectual. Like it's very difficult to explain. It's even difficult to talk about. You know, so, so some of the sessions will end and it's like, okay, we'll just drink a lot of water. And I studied with an EMDR master therapist here in DC. He had a very like woo woo vibe to him that originally I thought, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. Cause I have a lot of, you know, I want to know why things work. And he said, well, everybody in this room is like a shaman. And I was like, am I a shaman? Is that what this is? <laughs> and he said, you know, because essentially we can't really explain it and we don't really know why, but it is a hundred percent true. You'll see it. You'll see healing in front of you. You'll feel it in your body. And, and that sounds like what you're describing. And certainly, you know, children still have so much energy that has yet to be dialed down. Even teenagers, they know they begin to learn very quickly, but they have much more of it than adults do. And so when you're describing that process of watching them in this magic, it, it must be very rewarding. Um, it is. I mean, I suppose it's the, you know, Jung would call it the, the unconscious, you know, it's the unconscious becoming more conscious in the room. But I recognize it as more of a spiritual energetic connection. And I don't, I don't talk about this very much because you have to, be careful around using this kind of this kind of language when you're talking about psychotherapy but there's definitely a thread I would call it I often call it a thread that's invisible 
which really has led to my work becoming, you know, about this invisible backpack, which, you know, children and adults, we all have one, carry around with us. And really it's about unpacking those invisible threads and feelings, you know, that represent feelings and experiences, trauma that we've all got, that we have to work through and live through and get Mm. comfortable with and find out where the edges are and what softens us. So that, you know, so that load doesn't feel quite so overwhelming. Well, part of, I I would love for you to talk more about the backpack. It's a, it's a metaphor. I I love people's metaphors. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that. Partly, partly because when I'm in early stages of working with people and I ask them about what it is that they think they carry, they have a really difficult time sort of identifying that. Then these are adults, you know? So then we do that gentle work of saying like, well, you know, your mom was ill when you were a child. So maybe that's a rock that you're carrying. Tell me a little bit about what that looks like with kids. Just let the listeners know about your work because it really is a concrete activity. And you have a, you have a book about the backpack, right? Well, I have two books. I have one where, which is a picture book called Isaac and the Red Jumper, which is a picture book for bereaved children. And then I have a guide, which is where I talk specifically about the backpack called Helping Children Cope with Loss and Change. And this came about because I suppose of my own personal connection with finding my own metaphor Mm. and discovering my own backpack which was through, you know, using art therapy. But my, my original metaphor was a cradle. Mm. And it was the cradle that really led me into the work of becoming a play therapist, learning how to hold and carry and even discover what that meant to have something called a, a, a cradle, led me naturally into this work. I think children naturally discover their own metaphors if and it's an important if if they are given space to do that I think that's the key and I think what works with adults doesn't work with children so when you say to a young child so so tell me you know how do you feel about this experience that you've had someone's died well I don't know you know shrug the shoulders or I want to go and play and run off but if you give them access to a toolkit like painting or drawing, give them an exercise Mm. to do, choose an object from the table and tell me the story about that little elephant. You know, what do you think that little elephant wants to say today? They immediately go into their imagination and tell you vividly about that elephant. And within that story will be the metaphor that they need to work with. Mm. So for me, my job is to be patient I trained, my, my play therapy training was, was, you know, based on Virginia Axline, who always worked indirectly with children. To start right. with it. Very much about letting the child be the center of the work. Don't direct them. Don't, yeah. don't ask them any direct questions. Yeah. So really, when you do that, that's when the magic happens, because the child will naturally unpack for you what they have been carrying around with them in this backpack they will just lay it out on the table and say you know this little elephant is really fed up about the fact that you know he's wearing heavy boots and he's trudging through the mud and then you say ah okay so tell me about the boots tell me about the mud and then you're off to the races then you'll get a complete description about how deep the mud is, how it stinks and, you know, the colors, the browns, the oranges, that's the metaphor unfolding before my eyes. And it's really, it's really holding space and deepening in, isn't it? I mean, that's what you're describing, which is, which is a stunning thing to watch. And I have to say, I mean, our listeners can't see me, but I'm smiling really hard because I think that the type of therapy that you're describing requires such self-discipline and patience because children do really fascinating things. And just to give a quick nugget, you know, essentially it's non-directive, meaning you are, if a kid comes in and stands there for 10 minutes, you're standing and waiting on that child, that they go first and that you observe and hold space in the observation and the belief, which is true. I, I, the metaphor that I use with clients 
a lot is, you know, when they're asking about why an interaction went really poorly, part of what they're tracking that they need to track is also their own response. And so I say, listen, if someone came into you and said, I'm really angry about this and you were doing really great active listening, eventually if they feel heard, you might take a minute, but if they're getting louder and louder and louder, you are not active listening. You think you are, but you aren't because active listening allows the person who's doing the talking to give you more explanation, deeper explanation, you know, more details. So part of what you're describing is the very light touch it takes to actively listen to a child. Yeah. While they, you know, sit there and direct. I am not trained in play therapy. I mean, that's not true. I've taken small trainings in play therapy, but part of the part honestly, part of the reason is it takes such profound patience mm. to be able to sit in that energy and let it unfold. And I know from your description, it's complete magic when you can do it. it yes, it, 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 it absolutely is. And that's where the, the development really takes place is in the silence sometimes. So when, you know, parents might say, you know, I'm really worried about the fact that my child doesn't want to talk about this or they don't want to speak or they're quiet for long periods of time. That to me is a sign that the child is holding yeah. a lot of their feeling inside. But if, if they're given a, a space, you know, and Axeline talks a lot about one of her principles is, you know, unconditional acceptance, mm. uh, being non-judgmental in the space. If you can do that and hold that, the child feels they have permission to just tell you truthfully how they feel. So yeah, a lot of the time it's about me stepping, not stepping back or mm. stepping away. I'm very much connected to the child and I'm alongside them. But yes, active listening is absolutely key in that dynamic because the minute it changes, that's when shame comes in and the child yeah. might feel that they've been shamed in another context. You know, they, they're criticized. The minute they feel that judgment, they shut down. That's really what we're trying to do as grief specialists is to take away those layers of shame so that they can say what's really, what's really upsetting them. When I was um, in graduate school, I took this brilliant child art class and, and we had a lab school where I was. And so, you know, we often were able to go into the classroom and I, I taught in the classroom for a little while, but I remember switching the language based on the encouragement of this class from, oh, I see you made a fire truck when it was an obvious fire truck to me to, oh, wow, you used a lot of red on that picture. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely remember the difference between me telling a child what they had done, just commenting on what I could see, you're using a lot of red and the conversation that that would bring. I don't have red crayon at home or I've started this at home, but I'm doing it now. You know, it is a fire truck, but also it's a race car. So we can get to the fire even faster. It's fascinating. And so I'm imagining part of what you must also do is really hold the fear and the energy of whomever the parents or caretakers are. You're not bringing your child or a child into a therapist's office just, you know, to have an hour to kill. You're coming with concern. Tell us a little bit about what is managing and working with the parents' energy like? It's challenging. And it's challenging because it takes a lot of courage for a parent to bring their child to any therapy. But I think with play therapy particularly, because they know that the child is going to be in an environment where they can let it all all hang out. You know, if they're doing a lot of talk therapy, it's likely that a young child will just freeze and won't say anything. So I think parents come with the fear that what is the child going to say? What is the child going to do? So for me, my role is to to hold the the parents as well. So I always meet parents before therapy starts, during and after. It's very much holding the privacy of the child, the confidentiality around that. And then obviously with the parents as well, whatever, whatever concerns that they might have. But what always emerges is the parent's story. 
So there will be then two stories running in parallel. There's the child story that's emerging and there's always the parents. And what is interesting Mm -hmm. is over time, how those two start to connect. Mm -hmm. And very often the parents won't be in the room when the child's having therapy. But what happens, and this happens at a, you know, an energetic level is that they start to get closer together. The narratives start to get closer together. The work that the child is doing makes a difference outside the room. So when they leave me and they go home again, they take all that learning with them. Mm. And the parent feels it. They feel the difference. They feel the shifts that the child's made and they shift. And when they shift, the child shifts. And, And it's an incredible dynamic that is unpredictable. So I can't predict how that's obviously going to uh, change over time. But what I trust and what I know, because I've been doing this a long time now, is that that will happen. So I always reassure parents at the start by saying, you know, this is going to be a process. It isn't a fix. It isn't a strategy. It's, It's a process and it's a journey and it will take time. But trust the process because you will you will be in a different place at the end of it and it's likely that you will you will understand yourself and you'll understand your child in a different way and you know my hope is always that the child's voice that they find in the therapy is a voice that the parent caregiver recognizes yes and that once they recognize the child's voice as being valid, as being authentic, as being real, they shift as well. And they, they realize then that the child's experience is real and um, has to be engaged with. And so there's a level of engagement that happens at some point in the therapeutic relationship where I see, and I see it in the parent's physicality will shift, their bodies change, you know, the way they move changes and they, they get it. And I can see the light going on, I think, they've got it now. I had one family, father was a surgeon, mother was a, was a nurse, and he was very left-brained. Mm-hmm. And I can talk about this case because it's actually on my website. They, okay. they talked about it publicly. And he said eventually... Just was, quick, quick tell our listeners what left brain means. Let's oh, okay. Left-brained it. means when you are, you are speaking from a rational the rational part of the side of your brain as opposed to the right side which is more emotional and creative and he he was very left brain dominant so it was about being rational coming up with solutions and we can fix this and his daughter was more right brain dominant so she would they were constantly arguing and clashing the process of the therapy shifted them both to a point where they could respect and understand their difference. And because of that, they stopped fighting Mm -hmm. and started to accept that they were both valid. And he said in the end, his daughter said to him one day, you know what, dad, you just get it now, it's great. And he did, and there Mm. is a change that occurs, yeah. That's, it's fascinating to hear about. And I think probably, you know, the things that help us continue to do the job because the job I know is hard. I imagine you must see, and I'm saying this as a parent who woke up this morning and the first things I said to my husband were like, I think I'm failing my children in this way and this way and this way. That tends to be my nighttime anxiety of all the things. And what I can tell you for sure is those ways that I'm failing my children are not the ways that my parents failed me because I have filled those holes. I have my own special ways of showing up with my personality, which is different than my parents to wrestle with my own anxiety that whatever it is that parenting is meant to be, I'm not doing that well enough. So I'm curious about that. I am imagining that children are often burdened with that energy, whether they understand it or not from their parents. And if you are seeing children who are harmed in some way, particularly outside of the parents at a caretaker or on the playground or something that there would be even more energy about that. How do you help the parent? You know, do you recommend they go to therapy? Do you bring them into the room for therapy with you? So if there's intergenerational conflict, you know, I've done quite a lot of work with domestic violence and domestic abuse, and that can often carry into the next generation. And if that happens and when that happens, 
at some point I will invite either one or both of the parents to come and see me, not with the child, but separately to understand the dynamic of what might be going on. Sometimes it's it's safe enough for the couple to talk about that and we can unpack a little bit of that. If it's more deeply rooted, then I might refer on to, you know, other specialists. But but usually I like to invite, if it's appropriate, them to come in to look at that narrative, to look at that story, to see if we can work, break some of that. So if, if we can, and I have done this before, what then shifts, of course, is that the reactive behaviour that the, the parent might be reenacting, you know, the hitting or the, the shouting, particularly shouting is usually a common, uh, yeah. a common reaction to unprocessed trauma and loss and grief. If they can understand why it's happening, then there is a real shot at changing that. Mm. So insight oriented, maybe more for the parents, helping them, helping them really get it might help pot create that pause before the shouting help give some insight into this is what drives that behavior. Tell me about what's in your office in terms of, you know, I, I saw a wonderful IFS therapist for a while who also did IFS therapy for children. And I would spend my first 10 minutes being like, Ooh, you have your sand tray out and there's zebras and horses in there. And she would give me a snippet about the work that she had done with the kids. But I do think every adult has a real inner, inner child. And again, part of an adult work and in trauma work, what we're trying to help with some of the energy, particularly with grief and loss is find those things. You know, did you love horses as a child and try to bring that energy into how you want to process through. So I'm just curious, do you, you know, Mm. do you have a lot of hedgehogs in your office? (laughs) Is there, you know, in my experience, therapists have their own way of filling in the resources that they use. So I'm just curious. So it's a great question. And in play therapy, it's very, it's very structured. So I, every parent who comes into my space, they all bring in their own inner child. So the minute they see the beanbag or they see a musical instrument, say, oh, can I come in and can I come in and play? So the, the play therapy space is always set up in the same way. Yeah. Uh, so the, 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 the toys are always in the same place, literally down to the zebras and the snakes and all the soft toys being in the same place. The idea behind this is that the theory behind it is, and again, it's, it's Axeline's theory that objects represent very specific things to children so when they re-enter the room each week they need to know that those objects are going to be in the same place it creates safety it helps them to build constancy a sense of object constancy so that they they're building up that inner constancy for themselves as well as well as knowing that those objects will be on the shelf or on the floor so yes I have I have a a mixture of things I'll have uh, I've got a painting table which is child height with little chairs and bookcase full of you know books and painting brushes and pens and paper so over time and very quickly they orientate themselves around the space so there's no need for me to direct and the learning for them is that they can build confidence in knowing it's all about knowing so the the inner knowing they they know where things are and then they they start to trust that and that's about building their trust but yes the beanbags are always um, popular because they can function as different things they can be I'm going to flop down here for five minutes and sometimes we'll do that other times it's used as an object to build some kind of hiding place, yeah. you know, with blankets over. That concept of resiliency and how do we foster resiliency? And I will tell you my bias, which is like, you know, I, what I believe is resilient at the, at the heart of resiliency, what we're, what we're really talking about is recovery. How quickly is someone able to recover and come back and re-engage? People don't 
love when I give that answer, but I, therapists usually nod their heads. So I've learned to talk about resiliency without saying like, ah, I don't love that word, but I'm curious for you, like, how do you think about it? And when, when parents I imagine are coming in and saying, we need our kid to be more resilient because they read that in a magazine and, you know, please inject them with more resiliency. (laughs) If you can talk about that word for a minute, I'd love it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I sort of groan, have come to groan when I hear that word a bit yeah. now, mainly because it's so associated with bouncing back, yeah. which I resist. I'm not a, a believer in resilience being about bouncing back, having grit, determination. I think it's a, I think it's a very male view of, of resilience. Yeah. For me, resilience is built and created when you listen. Whenever a parent says you know I want to be more resilient I always then say well how would you qualify the listening the level of listening that you're doing with your child tell me about that describe that to me what does that look like for you what does that feel like for you when there's conflict when there's upset in your house how do you navigate that and how does the child recover from that experience where are you when they're in that process and usually that is the moment where they they go completely silent and then I can see them retract and think about it. So it's about two things, I think. One is it's about learning and it is a learning curve. It isn't easy to do. We don't all come in knowing how to do this. You have to learn how to do it. T- to learn what needs to be resolved. What are the pieces of um, that need to be resolved in any any kind of conflict and then li- listening to them and seeing where the tension is how do I feel about that how am I going to navigate that little difficulty there can I listen to how I'm I'm feeling within myself and the more I think I see them do that the more what I would call the resilient they become because then next time it happens you know guess what then they they go oh yeah i remember when i did that before now i know what to do so i think it's it's a memory it's it's a memory building block really mm. that needs to be developed around listening you're not exactly saying it this way but what it's making me think of is that work which actually we also do with children i mean you know my kids are 11 and 13 and nine and just having them cue into when they're hungry versus when they are supposed to eat. And Mm. just something as simple as going to bed when you're tired, even though maybe it's not your bedtime. I'm one of six children. We didn't really have a lot of flexibility in the household to just sort of like wait and see from a child centered perspective, which I have complete respect for, you know, in terms of how my mom and dad had to run the house. But But I had an executive years ago now who he looked really uncomfortable in this session. And I said, you have a look on your face that I have not seen before. And I would love to know more about it. He said, you know, I really have to go to the bathroom. And I was like, oh my gosh, get up and go to the bathroom. And he came back in and it led to this whole conversation about how he never went to the bathroom during the day. He never went because people who, you know, he was only giving people five to seven minutes of his time anyway. And he didn't want to be late. And he was always late. I mean, it was, it was an extraordinary thing to hear from a man who made tons of money, ran his own life, quote unquote. But when we walked it back, you know, there wasn't a lot of room anywhere in his life for him to be hungry when he's hungry, go to the bathroom when he needs to go to the bathroom. And so he had, he was living a life this way. And the way that I talk about them with with my clients is like the little kid is waving their hand to you, you know, from the, you're driving, but they're behind you sort of waving, I'm hungry. I need to, and it will never work. I mean, anyone who's ever driven a child around, you can't say you're not going to the bathroom. You can't say you're not going to eat. And obviously we have needs that go beyond the, the simple basic ones, but I'm imagining, you know, children in your room who are beginning to be trained in that and that you are training their system to see that as resiliency, as we, in trauma, we talk, we talk a lot about the window of tolerance. And what we know is when people have to break off relationships or decide that other people are not good or opt out of environments quickly because their window of tolerance is very small. And there's lots of ways to get a small window of tolerance, but certainly 
what everyone is looking for is to be able to expand it even 1%, even 2%. And so I actually work on that with my kids. I'm not trying to keep them up past their bedtime, but when they're in conflict with friends, my little, my middle guy had an issue with his soccer team and he didn't want to play anymore. And I was like, I totally understand that. It's a lot to have one incident mean that you don't play soccer anymore. Could you just go and watch practice? Can you just step a little bit towards? And when I'm talking to people about resiliency, what I'm saying is, you know, can you move towards the idea, even just the concept in your mind of recovery rather than destruction? Because destruction we carry and we make meaning from and recovery doesn't have to mean you go back to where you came from. You know, if something was really difficult and somebody was really crappy to you and you discovered you really don't want to do that anymore, we can take in that information and move forward. But I'm just thinking about, gosh, what would that be like? I think in a, when a parent takes part in a session with a child and I invite them to take part in the game that we're playing yeah. the, and the parent experiences the discomfort of waiting, of stopping, of starting, they then realize this is what my child has been yeah. dealing with. And when I, you know, when they, they stop, start or whatever they're doing in the game and they, they start to get really uncomfortable and antsy in the reflection part of the session, you know, at the end, we'll talk about that. And they'll say, I had no idea, no idea. Because what's happened is it's likely the child squashed that feeling because it's not been acknowledged. It's not been recognized in the family. So when it's not acknowledged and it's not voiced, Nobody can say, I want to go to the bathroom. I want to eat. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. But when the, the parents are aware of it and they can feel it, not because they've, I've told them, but because they felt feel it. it. In that, yeah. They feel it. That's when it changes. Yeah. That's when it can change. So it's, yeah, it's about recognition and awareness. And that comes from experience, the experiential part. That's not something you can give someone a book about and say, go read this. You have to experience it yourself, I think, to, to get it really. Well, it's interesting because what I've been talking to people on the podcast and some clients recently, someone did some writing about this in our writer's workshop is also, you know, reflecting on childhood trauma and then discovering what it's like on the other side to be the parent, right? So I feel like that experiential base ends up being on both sides, probably for our mm -hmm. whole lives. Like it's really important to be able to relate to your children and understand. I think about just how crazy heroic, just my three kids, never mind the entire world. Th these kids are doing school in a way that we have no way to empathize with because we've mm -hmm. never had this experience. Most of us, even, even people who had health issues and were out of school for a year, the way you know, one of my children will be out of school for an entire year. You know, it wasn't the same. It, this thing that kids are learning how to do and how hard it is, is something that we really have to show up and listen to because we, we don't have any way mm -hmm. of really knowing. And at the same time, and part of the way that I grieve my mom all the time is I am in the throes of what I have very concrete memories of her you know, I'm in my, in my late forties and I remember her in her late forties parenting us and she was much less vocal. You know, I am a little bit of a yellow. There are plenty of things just so everyone on this podcast knows that I know are not great parenting and I do <laughs> anyway, but it is interesting how, when you have the experience, when you embody the energy, when you know what it feels like to feel that kind of fear or frustration or impatience or minimizing just how you never need to be taught it again, that once you experience it, it makes sense in grief and loss. What I talk about is people think they know, but it's a bit like describing France and studying France versus going to France. You know, you can't yes. explain the five senses experience. And eating the croissant and knowing what it tastes like. It's, it's, you can't replace that. I was just thinking as you were talking and describing the, the link that often happens between being parented and then being a parent is that what I've noticed is that, you know, children, their loss, it touches 
the parent in a different way from the parent experiencing the loss themselves. Yes. So if the family comes in with one big loss, it's a bereavement. The fact that the child is dealing with that will end up touching the parent in a different way, in a way that they can't access on their own. Yeah. So there's something that the way those two losses then reconnect enables the parent to rethink their own experience. That's fascinating. Mm. They, That's... they end up having a different layer of reflection on their own loss because their child has shown them a different picture. It's like going to the movies and suddenly the camera person shifts and they go, yeah, but did you see that scene over there that you missed? And they go, I didn't notice that. That's what the child does. They reflect, they show you a different part of the loss and the grief that you haven't got access to. It's so interesting that you're saying that Yeah, the other day, a podcast that's about to come up is with a, a friend of my husband's, Paul O'Kane, who's Irish. And what Paul talked about, what he lost his brother to an asthma attack. His brother was 17 and, and he was 15 and it was devastating. And he, you know, still talks about it with tears, even though he's mm. in his fifties, it was 20 years later, he was sitting and talking to a grade school friend and they were talking about things in school. And the friend said, well, and of course, you know, it was hugely impactful when Mick died, his brother died. And Paul was like, what do you mean? Why would that? And it was this at the age that he was a grown man taking in what it must have been like for all his classmates, all of whom came to his brother's funeral, all of whom had never had a a young person die Mm -hmm. before. And when he was describing it, just a total shift of feeling very isolated and alone in the, in the experience Mm -hmm. and understanding Mm -hmm. that there was all this I mean, to use language from like parallel play around it, like parallel loss happening, the way he described it, it really shifted how he thinks about loss. And when I think about grief and loss and healing trauma, that's what we're often trying to do is take the actual experience with our memory and bring in some sense of imagination and perspective and shift how it resides inside your body. And I have watched with therapies that I use, like IFS therapy, you know, people use amazing tools, often very childlike tools. I'm always fascinated. There's a process in IFS called unburdening, which is exactly as it sounds, which is the idea that you can live without a belief that you have held for a long time. And in order to do that, you sort of take it out of your system with your imagination. And when people get stuck, I say, is there anyone or anything that you could imagine could help us in this moment. Mm. And for clients that have done some of the child work with me, they will bring in like Hagrid from Harry Potter or, you know, a superhero or their coach from their childhood and they'll get the job done. And it's just fascinating to me that concept of imagination and historical memory how it can transform and then can even transform a parent that the system, there can be ripples through the system that change it over time. It's hard not to feel the spirituality in that. And I appreciated what you said before. And I also am super careful. I have my own religious trauma that I've written about. So religion in general is like a third rail for me, but I do try to fiddle around with the language for people to find out how do you talk about that energy that feels like it's not just yours, you know, like even in our conversation, I go all hot and cold and I feel (laughs) all these things inside of me. And I'm like, that's because of the connection that we have between us, Mm -hmm. not because of something, it wouldn't be happening if, if it was just. Well, let me know when you figure out how to talk about that, because I think it's becoming more and more apparent in my work the need to talk about it. I think this is a topic on its own and it's a topic I'm very interested in in relation to some of the the processes we've been talking about, particularly when we're talking about a parent getting in touch with their own inner child experience and their own child showing them their real experience. When those two stories converge at some point, 
that's really a point of healing. That is a moment of healing there. Recovery, whatever, you know, we want language we want to use. I've come to recognize that that is that is healing in 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 that space where you can recognize and validate difference you can hear and support common common ground communication opens up you can have conversations that didn't take place before but yes that that invisible I keep using the word invisible and I think there is a reason for that I think it's also there's a parallel experience which is about making it visible there's a need to make the invisible you know when I I was diagnosed with um ovarian cancer in my early 40s actually on my 40th birthday and I remember talking about it you know during my recovery as being a very felt experience there was nothing invisible about this and yet it was always called the silent killer and for me it wasn't silent at all It was very noisy. I just had symptoms that nobody recognized. So my journey from that was actually when something feels silent, there is a need to make it heard and to have a voice. And I think that's been a big driver for me in my work, you know, is let's make something that feels invisible. Let's make it visible. I'm on a very different but similar track in that now it's about making experiences that feel for children very dangerous very scary because they they can't be talked about making them heard yeah i mean god i in my younger years as a therapist i think i was more careful about Mm. holding back myself in the room and when my mom died and i had terrible ptsd i had these two women who've known me a very long time who are also therapists. They were my supervision group. And we talked about, you know, what's going to happen when I come back to work, what am I going to reveal to clients? You know, my job is to take care of them first. And one of them said, let me ask a different question. How do you need to show up in the room? And I was like, I have to tell them. I mean, it was such an immediate answer. And she said, right. So, you know, you're not going to be connected to that tenant of your truth if you don't tell them. And so tell them and then, you know, spend as much time as, as is needed to help regulate if that's really difficult for them to know that you were ill while you were away, which is the work that I did. And I, I had a a variety of sort of discussions and have continued to have them that are almost like more honest about what it feels like on my end to be a therapist. I talked about the the EMDR therapist who sort of talked, you know, said we're shamans. And yet there is this weird magic that like, we kind of understand why EMDR works and we get what the optic nerve is doing, but also we have no idea. And they're in IFS therapy and those unburdenings and, and sometimes even in talk therapy, but definitely in body centered therapy. I had a couples therapist a long time ago, a guy that I was learning from named Stan Tacton, who, who uses this phrase, like, do nothing until you feel inspired. Do not move unless on inspiration. And I think that's his way of sort of saying, you know, when the energy, when the inspiration, which is something it's moving towards healing, but in IFS, I can almost, and I've said this to clients afterwards, like, like, oh yeah, I felt the waterfall. Like I could feel that we were about to head over the edge of the waterfall. I can feel it inside my body before sometimes. And I think I've shared with you when my mom died, I felt it inside my body. I think because I talk about those things for myself with clients. And then I invite them. I just sort of say, what, how does that feel for you? What do you think about that? When I say that, like, is that too far out there for you? And they'll say, yeah, it's kind of, you know, some are like, it's a little far out there. I'm like, I know it's far out there for me too. I hate it, but I don't have any, like, but it's also true. And when people talk about, I have a whole chapter in a book that I'm writing, you know, being visited by a cardinal that they believe was their father. I hate those stories. And yet I also 100% believe them. And so I have this both and in that, which is like, I don't know what that is. I don't know that language in the same way that like language can't, doesn't do a good job of explaining smell. I think it's more head nodding. I think it's more like, look, this is the thing that I, you know, all I can tell you is it definitely happened. I'm not making it up. And that there is a cohort of people for whom that will make sense because they're in touch with that energy. But also I think in your work, 
you are priming kids to be more in touch with that. And in my work, I'm hopefully expanding folks who have cut themselves off from that somewhere in between your age group and my age group yeah, yeah. so that they can be more in touch with that instinctive sort of knowing. But I don't have great language. And the reason I can tell you, I know I don't have great language is these are very difficult chapters to write. They're mm-hmm. very difficult chapters to put down in words. I find that I can talk about them, but anytime I'm like, ah, it's not exactly that. And it's not exactly that. I, I totally get that. I mean, it took me eight years to write the experience of healing recovery from from ovarian cancer. And I did eventually do it and, and publish a memoir about it. Mm-hmm. And the reason I didn't have language was because the, the experience was just so visceral, so deep. So I painted, I did 200 paintings around that mm-hmm. time to tell the story, which is, I know for sure was an experience that has led me through yeah. to do this yeah. work. I couldn't do this work without having had that experience in a a way that now makes complete sense to me. That's just the way I've chosen to experience it and to see it and to understand, make sense of that. I'm, I'm aware that there are many other different ways of that people would, would look at my experience, but it's my experience. And I've come to, to know that that's what it means for me, which is, I think, you know, coming back to children, that is what they trust as well. You know, they know what they they know and they understand themselves and we just need to. Absolutely. And, and in grief and loss, and again, anyone who listens to me talk has heard me say this a million times, you know, my hope for people is not that I teach them how to grieve. My hope for people is that they grow a capacity to grieve, that they hearken back to places where they were able to be in touch with a lot of emotional energy or emotional energy. One question I ask people is where do you cry? And like lots of people cry in the car and lots of people cry in the shower. And so what I say is, okay, so you're more of a private crier. There are just as many people who can't cry, don't feel safe crying unless there's someone else in the room. And so just handing it back to them. Oh, okay. So you need, it's better for you to be grounded with someone else, you know, there to cry. You know, all I'm trying to do is help them feel into if you're going to be crying as part of your grief, here's what we know about how you cry. But grievers often sort of stop there. What you just described with your cancer is the part that I'm hoping your podcast, my podcast, writing, talking encourages people to understand is that grief is a reactive energy to loss. We cannot do anything about the loss. The grief will loosen if you exercise it and exercising it is different than you think. It is painting, it's running, it's talking, it's writing, it's playing the violin, it's singing. When, when clients are really stuck, sometimes like on that feelings chart, you know, like you show them the faces and these are your feelings. I will say, here's a menu. Let me tell you about what other clients have done. And the first time you think, huh, maybe I could do that. Let's just pick that. Let's just do that Mm -hmm. and see what happens, which is a little bit like walking into a play therapy room and looking around and being like, Ooh, zebras, I'm going to go play with zebras. Just going towards the idea and instilling the confidence. Of course you can do this, you know, because we can heal. Yes, we can. And, you know, I was thinking back to shortly after my diagnosis, I lost my words completely. And having always been a writer, that was deeply traumatizing for me. I suddenly had no words, couldn't find a single word to write. And I remember discovering art therapy and feeling and hearing. It wasn't just a feeling. I heard a door in myself open. Oh, God as I walked through and sat down at the table, this very old wooden table with this amazing therapist who showed me the way, you know, gave me the brushes, gave me the paint. And and that was that. So it is about finding a language that helps you us express because, you know, grief knocks you sideways. It absolutely, I sometimes think I'm amazed I'm still standing, you know, I'm amazed I'm still here frankly, and how grateful I am to be here, to be able to do what I'm doing, the work I'm doing, the writing, everything. So, but it is, yeah, you do have to find the 
the zebra that works for you. Right. The zebra that works for you. (laughs) I have someone who's coming on the podcast. Who's a neuroscientist, partly because those of us that are also heavily left brained being able to say, listen, here's why you didn't have words from a scientific perspective. Part of that drops the shame away a little bit and just sort of says, listen, this thing happened you are an organism, your system is a system, just like everybody else's, your brain is going to respond. And, you know, for some people, they lose all their words or some people, they get all their words, but we will be different on account of this. Grieving is not something that we do every day for many people. They didn't have a primary attachment, grief and loss practice run when they were 11. And even if they did, it's different now, we're different now. So just again, hearing that and knowing you don't need to get your words back. You can go with whatever it is that feels instinctive and the body is really primed to heal. I mean, that, that from a spiritual center, I think is just, you know, we are really primed to, to grieve successfully. Mm. There's lots of language around grief and loss that I don't love, but, but when I talk about healing, what I mean is that hot flaming fire that makes it impossible to live our lives, that we can sort of put out that fire over time, but that there's, there's scars that we carry forever and ever. There's sometimes growth within that, which is just fascinating to me. It is. And I think one of the things coming back to the point about spirituality and, and finding language for that, one of the things I've noticed is that children tend to show up who want that experience of discovering their own spiritual strength. I think intuition was something that saved me massively. It's definitely been something I have and and use all the time. And I think children have it naturally. They just Mm -hmm. need to be, you know, in a space where they can feel that again. I agree with you. And I think there's lots of different ways of talking about that, right? Like from a more, scientific way we might talk about there's a hypervigilance or there's an instinctive knowing, but, but it doesn't, once you kind of know who you're talking to, you can pick which side of the brain. But, but I do think that children know things in their own way Mm. and that often lots of dust and debris gets piled on top of that. And we have to, by the time we're adults, we have to kind of go back to the ways that we used to know things and that reunion, which is very IFSE, that reunion of what I what I know about myself, and is is that idea of kind of like li- living with integrity, right? Like that, right. and right. and people I have seen people take those words and drop them right into you know that's living with the spiritual center, that's being connected to God, that's and you know I don't have you can call it whatever you like, it's no problem, but I do think that notion of someone being able to feel what we're talking about, right? Can you feel it? And when I know you're working with parents and children, you can see it on them the way, same way that I can see it with my clients, you know, Mm. and I have ways of reflecting that back to them. Mm. But I do think that's part of what makes the work worthwhile. And I do think that's part of the hope that we're offering is I've seen this, like I'm, that's why I'm the merchant of hope with this. You can lean on my belief you know, whether you lean on the statistics that I tell you, which is very few people actually die of grief. It's very, it's very small, or you lean on just the, my, that energy that you feel from me, which Mm -hmm. is like, I know you're going to be able to do this. I don't care. Pick which one doesn't matter. The idea is that we're going to grow your capacity to do this. And you and I are talking about growing capacity at a young age and growing capacity. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Mm -hmm. just to loop us out as we are finishing for today, The concept really is it's a lifelong process. It's not a thing that we go into a therapist's office for an hour and we tidy it up and clean it up and do it. And then we come out back into the world that hasn't changed. We just have to snap back into the world. You know, it's a lifelong learning process. I feel very grateful to have found therapy when I did and and to be engaged in it. I have been completely fascinated and curious and listening to what it's like to be working with children, because without being melodramatic about it, it does really sound like you are priming children to have much more positive and healthy experiences moving forward with challenge. To have a voice, to face those challenges. Yeah. 
That's and to believe that they can because they've done hard yeah. things before, right? I mean, that's yeah. The, yeah. the the parents who are trying to protect their kids from doing anything hard don't understand that if you haven't done anything hard, when the inevitable hard thing comes, you don't know that you can handle it. Yeah. But your students and your clients will have had that experience. I'm so grateful to have spoken with you. Do you want to tell folks how to find you. I'll put it in the show notes as well, but if they're interested in your books and interested in your websites and all that stuff. Yes. So you can learn all about what I'm doing. AmandaSaderhelm.com. There's a newsletter I write there every month. Sign up for that. My podcast is Helping Children Smile Again on Spotify, but everything is on my website. So if you go there, you can connect with my uh, social media as well. It was so lovely. Thank you. Thank you so oh, much it's been for lovely. giving me your time. I know we're going to keep talking because I yeah. there were so many bells ringing for me today. Yeah, me too. Me too. But thank you for the time. Be well, and we'll talk soon. We'll talk soon. Thank Thanks, you, Megan. Thanks, Amanda. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm so grateful to Amanda for this really interesting conversation we were able to have today. Please remember that Grief is My Side Hustle, the podcast is connected to my website, www.griefismysidehustle.com, where you can find blog posts and writing, updated information about workshops that I'm running, and also get connected to me on social media and learn more about our guests. Thanks so much for listening. More episodes out every Tuesday and some weeks with an extra bonus episode.